Okay, this is the Beatitudes week 7, the King and you. Who is this King? Uh, this is Wednesday the, I won't get it in a minute. Wednesday the 20th of February. And this is actually being recorded off outside the meeting because the week we wanted to record it there was an awful lot of uh, noise going on uh, with the builder, so um, I'm doing it like this. So I feel that we need to recap recapitulate on what we've already seen. Uh, the Beatitudes describe life in the Spirit, as indeed does the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. This is not something we can manage to do, in inverted commas, in our, on our own, but it's a fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. What he does require of us is our cooperation. We saw then that love and self-control were like bookends, keeping the rest of the fruit together. We saw that self-control was the bringing of the whole self under the benevolent dictatorship of the Holy Spirit, allowing him to live his life through us. We saw that as we become governed by God himself, there are no longer two lives to be lived but one. We saw that our entire lives, every aspect, spiritual, mental or physical, need to become the subject of God's sovereign spirit. We saw that we can say with the centurion soldier, I too am a man under authority. That's Matthew 8 verse 9 and Luke 7 verse 8. We saw that the running of my affairs, my attitudes, my actions need to be relinquished and turned over to the Holy Spirit who yearns jealously over us. Then we looked at attitudes and defined them as patterns of thinking developed over a number of years. Attitudes are patterns of thinking about a particular thing or situation where we consistently think the same way. These patterns of thinking are so deeply ingrained in our hearts that we hardly even notice them. They very often start early in life, so much so that we get used to reacting in a certain way, that our choices become automatic or non-existent, and in time we actually cease to see the fact that we have a choice. So we began reactivating our choosing mechanism, our will. The whole thing is about choices. We do have a choice every moment of every day about how we will respond. We saw that we need to become responders, not reactors. A thermometer shows the temperature, it reacts to heat and cold. A thermostat, on the other hand, keeps the temperature at the same level by responding to changes in the temperature and making the necessary adjustments to keep the temperature at the same level. We saw that we need to train ourselves in righteousness, it doesn't happen automatically. Hebrews 12.11 says, No discipline seems joyous for the time, but afterwards yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained thereby. Training process. Discipline. D word. The best way to train ourselves is by thoughtful combining of head and heart with the fruit of the Spirit. The best way to show and to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness and self-control is by thoughtful passion. A life centred on Jesus who is our passion. All behaviour needs training. Just watch yourself if you're prone to receiving correction as criticism. Watch your own reaction and then laugh at yourself. Gotcha. Caught again. God will take you around the same scenario until you finally realise that he wants to set you free from yourself and your own misery about yourself. You are not how you see yourself. You are how he sees you. He always sees you as present future. He sees what you are becoming, not what you were or what you are now. There is always a better way to live. Undisciplined, we will revert to how we normally react, like a default. We are training ourselves to be responders, not reactors. 2 Peter 1.8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the New American Standard Bible Version. Putting the disciplines in place then, keeping short accounts, being thankful, developing an attitude of gratitude, practicing reviews of our behavior, looking closely with the Holy Spirit about how we could have done it differently. This will produce fruit. Then we looked at the attitude of complaining and criticism and we saw there was a distinction to be made. Complaining relates to situation and criticism relates to people. Our negative thinking that relates to people is called criticism. Then there are two types of criticism, destructive and constructive. The destructive type is based on our perception. We think about the perceived faults of someone with no view to their best interests. Why don't they do things the way I do? Why can't they be more careful? Can't they see? Incidentally, no they can't. If they could, they wouldn't. So we are dwelling on the perceived faults of another with no view to their good. If we were thinking these things with a view to correcting what we perceived as wrong, i.e. teaching them how to do something, <coughs> that would be constructive. Excuse me. We saw that we needed to make this distinction. Complaining relates to situations and criticism relates to people and our negative thinking that relates to people is called criticism. Then we asked ourselves some questions. Am I a critical person? Am I reaping the consequences in my relationship with God and others? Am I willing to change my mind and heart? Then we began to examine the difference between Eros love and Agape love. We came to these conclusions. Eros, the Greek god of love, the god of love in ancient Greece, Roman equivalent Cupid. Eros, sexual love, sexual love or desire, but the most interesting one was the third one. In psychology it's called the instinct for self-preservation. In psychoanalytic theory, the instincts for self-preservation, pleasure and procreation are considered as a group. And this latter sums up what Eros love is. Self 
self-preservation, pleasure and procreation, eros, everything that is self-referential. Then we looked at agape, non-sexual love, love that is wholly selfless and spiritual, Christian love, selfless love felt by Christians for their fellow human beings, Christianity, a communal Christian meal, a communal meal held by a Christian community, especially in early Christian times, in commemoration of the Last Supper. Those definitions come from my laptop, so it's, it's not a, um, a biblical definition at all, that's just a straightforward dictionary def definition of the two loves. And the only attitude big enough to replace a critical attitude is an attitude of love, of love. And we ended week four with a prayer. And it went like this. Father, help me. Forgive my negative, critical and fault-finding ways. Give me a heart to love people and bear with them. Enable me to speak the truth when it's needed, whatever the cost. Give me a heart to accept others as you accept me. Give me mercy as you have poured out your mercy on me. I want to be filled with your agape love, but I find myself full of something quite the opposite. Father, please work on me until you've transformed my eros into your agape. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. And then we looked at the helper. Our lives can become quite simplified if we will walk in yielding to the present moment in God. It takes discipline and practice, but that's why we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He comes alongside as the paraclete, the comforter. And again, my dictionary said about the paraclete, Christianity, Holy Spirit. In Christianity, the Holy Spirit. From the 13th century French, literally someone called to assist from ultimately the Greek word parakaline literally to call to your side from kaline to call I'm constantly amazed at what I can find in an ordinary dictionary so we have the paraclete to help us we never need be at a loss if we'll call upon him isn't he lovely Jesus was made in likeness of men and found in fashion as a, as a man, Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Without a recognition of our need, we will never come into the category of the first beatitude. As we admit that without him we can do absolutely nothing, we place ourselves in alignment with God's view expressed by Jesus in John 15:5, Without me, you can do nothing. He didn't mean you can't live your life. He meant that without my life being expressed through your life, you can do nothing of lasting value, nothing that will affect eternity, because I am your source, your wellspring. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Stay connected to me and you will bear fruit of lasting value. Disconnected from me, you will bear nothing of lasting value. We know well enough by now that God is using the circumstances and situations in our lives to form Christ in us. He stated that this is his intent. He will not rest himself until Christ is formed in us. 
our best attitude towards this is yielding to the present moment in God. And then bringing us right up to date, last week we looked at a different way of loving and a different way of living in resurrection life. The other side of the cross. Romans 6, 6 and 7 tells us, knowing this, that your old life was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. If you do not know you have been crucified with Christ, then you cannot believe it. Try speaking out Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We reckon the old person, the one you were before conversion, dead, in order to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that we can test what goods, God's good, acceptable and pleasing will is for us. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. You cannot find this out, his acceptable and good and pleasing will, from your unrenewed mind, because it is set on the flesh. Romans tells us it's hostile, it's at enmity, it's actually at war with God, so it won't help you in the slightest. God is not concerned about your past, any of it. He is not concerned with your perceived failure. It's been dealt with in Christ. God is concerned about who you are now and who you are going to become. He is consumed by life and possibility. He is consumed by the thought of you becoming the absolute best you can be. We are learning what it means to belong to a different kingdom with completely different values and be subject to a king who is totally other than the kingdom of darkness. We are in a process. We've been got, we've been had. The Holy Spirit has us. The Gospel then is about the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom it's all about me. And that causes us to rethink if we thought it was all about us. Eyes off self and on to him. What about doubt and unbelief versus faith? New life in Jesus begins with an act of faith. We believe what God says and we respond. We were not alive at the time of the crucifixion, but we believe that what happened then involved us and we can be partakers of it. That's belief and faith working together. For a while all goes well, as we saw last week. We're full of the joy of the Lord, but then the enemy of our souls begins his undermining work, putting doubts and fears into our minds, inciting us to mutiny in our hearts, ministering to the fallen side of our nature. He persuades us that this is a hard walk, too tough, asking too much, negative, 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 fill in your own blanks. In short, we go backwards fast. The precious blood has removed all the obstacles except one, 
unbelief. Unbelief is a choice, beloved. You can choose to believe, you can choose not to believe. The problem is, largely, that we see something, then we will believe it. But God says, believe, then you will see. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus says, blessed are you, if you've not seen, and yet believe. By definition, doubt is the absence of faith, it's the complete opposite. Doubt is a mindset that says, I just don't know if God will keep his promises. It's a lack of confidence or assurance in God. It's a propensity to listen to the father of lies rather than the father of love. It's a battle, but it's also a straightforward choice to believe that God is good. It's really silly to doubt when you can live in rest and peace just by choosing to believe what Jesus has done and what he is promising in your situation and living and resting in that. It does involve effort. We have to push away, actively push away all the onslaught of doubt that will promptly assail us as we make the choice to trust and rest. The purpose of the struggle is to make us strong. When you trust in the provision of man, your perspective of God becomes limited. You're prone to be weary, tired, confused and confounded. Life is an ordeal. Rest in God, and it isn't. The Holy Spirit will be brilliant. He's a genius. Faith is rooted in the person of God, and rooted in relationship. You cannot blindly trust someone you do not know. Knowing God intimately is the answer to any lack of faith. As you begin to discover him, to find that he is the kindest person you will ever meet, that he cannot be anything other than who he is, that if he says a thing he means it, he won't change his mind tomorrow and withhold from you. Scriptures say, I the Lord change not, and God is not a man that he should lie. And Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. There is a need to hear yourself speak out the word, the things of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 10.10 says, We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is how it comes, by confession or agreement with God. Lord, you're wonderful, I believe it. Developing a thankful heart, not a complaining heart. Praise is a lifestyle. You can't be confessing a negative at the same time as confessing a positive. Most of us are trained to be negative. We're trained by teaching, we're trained by life to be negative. And God wants to change that into training us to be positive in every situation. I asked last week, what would it take for you to believe that God is unceasingly magnificent? How would your mindset have to change? What attitude adjustment would you have to make? All day, every day, God unceasingly magnificent. I haven't got there myself yet, but I'm working on it. If you had to approach all day, every day, thinking that God was unceasingly magnificent. Father, you are utterly amazing, incredible and magnificent, glorious and wonderful. I said that that is the bride talking, talking about her beloved and listening to the heart of the beloved. She then confesses, 
I am the glorious companion of an incredible king. We are to share his throne. We have to learn that we're joint heirs. An heir cannot work alone. A joint heir cannot work alone. It can only work and act in partnership with another. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus. It is so important to dream. She's constantly declaring, I am the highly favoured one of God. I am the glorious companion of the incredible King. Slight mindset change. This is where we should be living, in the knowledge that we are joint heirs with Christ. We shall reign and rule with him. This isn't a fairy story, this is fact. Let's begin to live there and come into everything Jesus died to give us. The scripture says he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. That's Isaiah 53.11 So here we are this week looking at the king and you. Who is this king? Again, I feel that this was the title God gave me. I thought what he's getting at is, who am I to you? Remember the disciples? Jesus asked them the same thing. Who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. He pressed it, but who do you say I am? He would ask you the same thing. Who am I to you? What distortion do you have on your view of God and who he wants to be for you this day? What mid-course corrections would you have to bring to bring yourself into line with the truth? Who is God for you then? Who do you say I am? Because on that revelation of him in your heart, he will build church through you. The church is built on an individual and collective revelation of who God really, really is. And if we don't get it, the world isn't going to get it either. If we don't know what it is to live in the much more care of God, under the smile of God every day, what are we offering the world? Come to church and join a social club? Fill in your own blanks. Jesus actually said, come unto me, not come unto church. However good your local expression of church may be, it is him and to him alone we are called to come and work with. King, Kingdom. By definition, if there is a king, there must be a kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom is within you. Don't go hither and yon looking for it. It's inside you. Madame Guillon apparently sought high and low for the deeper life and finally ended up at a monastery where she was interviewed by a young monk who incidentally quite liked her. And as she desperately asked how she could find God, he told her that what she was looking for was inside her. Instantly she saw it and was liberated. Anyone who has read the story of her life, Martyr to the Holy Spirit, written by a lady called Phyllis Thompson, will know what a close walk she had with the Lord. The kingdom then is within you. It's the amount of your inner territory that you have at any one time fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. 
make the most of grace. Grace is immeasurable. <coughs> Excuse me. It's free. It enables you to do what he asks of you. And he has oceans of it. Some of you will either have read or are reading The King Anew by Bob Mumford. He makes the point towards the end of the book. If you want to go your own way, don't call me Lord. Jesus is interested not in us doing his work, but in him directing his work through us. He really doesn't need our good ideas. He wants us to do the works he's prepared in advance for us to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. And he wants us to do what he wants when he wants us to do it. He wants to be king in our lives, to reign and rule on the inside, so that our lives are an expression of his indwelling and his glory. Jesus' view crosses many idea, people's ideas of being saved to serve. Some were called, some were called, some were sent, and some just got up and went. And it's the got up and went brigade to whom the remarks are addressed. I know that was my view for many years when I came into Christianity via a Baptist church that the whole thrust is you are saved to serve. But Jesus says something else. He says, don't call me Lord when you haven't done the things I said. Maybe polishing pews each week wasn't what he meant. His yoke, he tells us, is easy and it's light. He takes all the work. We work in bridal partnership with him. There used to be a poster, let go and let God. It pretty well sums it all up, really. One life to live. His. Through you. Short session this week, but thank you for listening and God bless you.